stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Santiago, Chile, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and Lisbon, Portugal, I am your parliamentarian of the podcast, the Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is a bonus episode of Shot and Shield, dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. In this bonus episode of Shot and Shield, I am very fortunate to be joined by Garinder Sin Man, who is the leading Sikh historian and author. He is the director of the Sikh Museum Initiative, who has, for over 20 years, prominently promoted Sikh history and heritage throughout the world. Garinder has researched and discovered Sikh artifacts from manuscripts to arms and armor in the United Kingdom. He has discovered many important locations of Sikh history and covered the battlefields of the first Sikh war. Garinder has also appeared on radio and TV, including Celebrity Antiques Road Trip and the BBC World Service, giving his views on heritage and theological matters. He has worked with all the major museums in the United Kingdom, including the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Royal Collection, the British Library, and the Royal Armories. As director of the Sikh Museum Initiative, his job is to locate Sikh relics and artifacts in the UK. He and his team have been making historical objects come alive with his 3D museum called the Anglo-Sikh Virtual Museum. His most recent publication is The British and the Sikhs, Discovery, Warfare, and Friendship, 1700 to 1900, and is the subject of our talk today. Garinder Seen Man, Director, thank you for taking the time to join me on Shot and Shield. Thanks for having me today, Scott. Um, great to be here on the Shot and Shield uh, podcast, and I look forward to the questions, and hopefully the listeners can um, get some understanding of the Sikh faith uh, through you know various anecdotes and stories, and also uh, some of the vignettes of research that I've taken for many years. I will tell you before before we uh, started recording, I did say that I know very little about this, and uh, you're going to be educating me today. You're my professor today, so if I if I slip and call you professor, trust me, <laughs> everyone does anyway, even though I'm not. <laughs> All right, so uh, you know, Gurinder, you know how how did this journey start for you into Sikh history? What what was the culmination? What what did you what sparked this for you? Well, it's interesting you say that because it, I did, it didn't actually, st- even though I'm um, born in the Sikh faith, it wasn't through anything specific related to Sikh history. In fact, I was, you know, going through school, college, and I was just fascinated with history per se. And technically not even history of, of a culture, of, of a place, but more the history of religions. How did religions uh, formulate themselves? So whether it be Christianity, Islam, or, you know, the Buddhist faith, etc. And I just got fascinated and was reading widely on all of these topics. And I think it kind of kept me in good stead because the Sikh faith was the one I looked at last. So in that way, I was able to get a kind of handle on what the world is saying or the, what the world has said, and then when I did actually start to think, well, my journey now involves actually riding this path onto what Sikh history is about, I actually had a worldly kind of uh, knowledge in terms of what I was kind of going to um, use, use as a barometer in terms of how to actually view Sikh history, if that makes sense. And one of the examples is my brother went to India in 1995, for instance, and brought this book back 
called The History of the Sikhs by J.D. Cunningham, who was who actually took part in the Anglo-Sikh wars of the, you know, of the 19th century. And it's interesting because that book was a spark. And from there, I, it kind of led me on to actually kind of enroll onto a master's degree here in Leicester, UK. And then it just spiraled out of that. Really, that is where the actual kind of impetus kind of came from. So how does the interest in the religions of the world in the Sikh religion then manifest itself into the look at the Sikh soldier? Absolutely. So the key thing here was that um, you first you need to actually know the, the components of a religion, if one may say that. Mm-hmm. And with the Sikh faith, it's interesting because predominantly Sikh faith uh, started in the 15th century under one individual called Guru Nanak. And the idea behind the faith is about righteousness, you know, denying falsehood, getting away from rituals, but it was very much seen in a saintly persuasion, if one can say that. Mm -hmm. But then through persecution of the Sikhs by the Mughals, for instance, the Sikhs then started actually having what one could say a martial spirit as well. So therefore, they were able to combine the saintly and the martial spirit, culminating into something um, in 1669 called the Khalsa, which was actually an institution created by the 10th guru called Guru Gobind Singh. So what he's doing is actually kind of saying, well, you know, we've got the saintly side, but we've been persecuted, so we need a martial spirit to go alongside that. I mean, there's people, you know, through the world, we have the yin and the yang. We've had, you know, through the, you know, the crusader period where, you know, warriors of God, you know, really uh, in the belief of the Christian faith, but then going out, you know, to fight against, um, you know, the armies of the East, for instance. So it's always been there to have this saintly and martial side, but the Sikhs actually really consider it to be part and parcel of their faith. So whereas, uh, you know, not to get off the subject of 19th mm-hmm. century, but to, when we're talking about the Crusades, you know, you, mm-hmm. the Crusaders from Europe going to the, the oh, promised yeah. land to fight for their God. Yeah. Okay. Whereas it seems what you're saying to me here is that uh, the Sikh uh, being the soldier and being faithful and being in the faith is part of the same oneness. Absolutely. And the key thing about the Sikh faith is um, very, it's very peculiar to the Sikh faith. We feel, um, you know, we we do studying and we look into, um, does the Sikhs have any kind of, you know, what's the word? There's always going to be similarities with other faiths, but the actual ceremony in 1699 by Guru Singh, what he does, he consecrates the existing Sikhs with a bat, with the actual um, initiation of a double-edged sword. So the idea there's a cauldron there, there's water in there, and it's stirred with sugar and a sword. It's very mystical in terms mm-hmm. of what, what the initiation of a Sikh is. And then with this initiation comes the wearing of the turban, you know, wearing the kara, and, and, and you have these symbols called the five Ks, which, normals, which initiated Sikhs wear. So, you know, they grow the hair long and, you know, refrain from cutting the beards and, you know, hair, for instance. And the whole idea is to actually have this um, this fraternity, essentially, which actually keeps in, 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 you know, is in unison with God. 
And we talk about weaponry, but the Sikhs actually rep, uh, venerate their weapons because they equate weapons with God, because God is the deliverer of justice, is the emancipator. So therefore, the weaponry is seen as the emancipation as well. But the key thing is, the Sikhs have always viewed weaponry as much as they could be armed to the teeth as a, you know, as something as, as a last resort as well. So, uh, you know, as uh, before you, I'm sure you've got a thousand questions related to that, but mm-hmm. as an example, initiated Sikhs walk across, you know, the whole world with, um, with arms, basically. So, you know, they'd wear, they'd wear the sword amongst themselves. Sometimes, most of the time, it's covered up. But the whole idea is just as a reminder to uphold the beliefs of injustice, you know, and to readdress wrongs as well. So, you know, the Sikhs are a colourful faith all around the world, and, and that's because of this idea of actually, you know, helping their common man, helping their common brother, com- common sister, but to actually still have this ideal that when it comes down to a battle, you need to be ready. How does that then manifest itself into being friends with the British? This, you've got to look at it in terms of three periods. I think if you look at the 18th century, mm-hmm. uh, we have a progressive, um, well, there's, a, there's almost like the rise of the Sikhs, the destruction of the Sikhs, and then the rise again in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And that's at the same time as when the British are getting a stranglehold in India, for instance, as well. So, you know, under, you know, uh, Robert Clive, the Clive of India, for instance, you know, as part of the East India Company, he's actually bit by bit the Battle of Buxar, for instance, you know, um, you know, creating this, you know, taking over Delhi slightly as well. And all these other things that the East India Company is doing, they incrementally on the rise at the same time the Sikhs after Guru Gobind Singh so early you know 1700s are still being persecuted but this time we have another invader into the territory of the Punjab called the Afghans Mm -hmm. the Afghans are coming all the way from what we call modern day Afghanistan all the way through the Punjab and then reaching Delhi and you know ransacking Delhi, for instance, um, and everything that's in their path. So people like Robert Clive from the East India Company, who are now, well, they're based in Calcutta, or Calcutta, as we call it, but their border or their area which they're in control of is a place called Awad. And even though there's some distance away from Delhi to Awad, Clive is basically saying, uh, so this is early touch, early touch between the British and the Sikhs, early touch, which is like, well, uh, we don't think the, the Afghans are going to reach where we are, but the only people who can stop their or impede the Afghans' actual uh, trajectory is the Sikhs. So it's interesting that the early 17, well, mid-1700s, we actually see Clive actually recognising the Sikhs for who they are. And whilst... Throughout the 18th century, there's, you know, there's better relations, sorry, not better relations, there's um, more relationships between the British and the Sikhs. It is in the 19th century, when we get to that area of the Anglo-Sikh wars, where there's direct conflict. That's not to say there wasn't some slight conflict before that, but the Anglo-Sikh wars of 1845 and 1846, and then the second one of 1848 and 1849 is when there's actual 
I would say, major conflict between the British and the Sikhs. And that is very, very interesting because the British actually had uh, multiple kind of um, battles uh, with various kind of groups, but the Sikhs actually created a treaty in 1809 with the British, which kind of held the two sides at bay for up until, like I said, up until 1846, between 1849, really. I think it's stuck in my head is you have these you have these two conflicts the, uh, the Anglo-Sikh wars then later on during the mutiny if I'm if I'm correct the the Sikhs actually helped the yeah. British East India Company during the mutiny is that correct Yeah so what we I think what you're trying to allude to but, but, well because I'm I'm trying to think of you know okay well you know this this is my this is my enemy and yeah. in less than 20 years now yes. I'm helping them Okay. And and it doesn't seem to me like the like the uh, Sikhs and Sikh religion would bring itself to help without a without consciousness uh, without respect. Well, the interesting part about this whole story is um, it's less than this twenty years we're talking about. So mm-hmm. um, the Punjab was effectively in eighteen oh nine. This treaty that was created allowed certain parts of the Punjab to actually be administered by by the British. This is from 1809, Mm -hmm. which allowed certain princely states, like places like Patiala, uh, Naba, Jind, to actually, well, generally be in line with British thinking. So even when the Anglo-Sikh wars took place, parts of the Punjab were either neutral or actually helped uh, the East India Company during these wars. So... During 1846 and 1849, these couple of years, the British did recruit Sikhs as part of the East India Company forces. It was during the wars that this recruitment period started. So when the Punjab is annexed in 1849, you've got all these soldiers, these Sikhs, whilst the whole uh, empire has now disappeared, there is this need for employment. What are they going to do next? Whilst um, the British have actually curtailed the Sikh army of the Sikh empire, but individuals who now want to be kind of, um, you know, brought in in small numbers to begin with because they have to be tested, are they going to be mutinous, as one may say? Right, right. And interestingly, from different pockets of the Punjab is where recruitment took place. And so 1849 onwards, and that's when you start getting Sikhs actually being enlisted and certain regiments start forming as well. And there's this, uh, the good, well, the interesting thing about the British was they, they initially never had a full Sikh unit, as for obvious reasons, you do not have a full regiment in case, you know, it's mutinous. But then mm-hmm. they started like, you know, enlisting them and at the same time with the Muslims and the Hindus as well. So they were part of various regiments. And then you start getting these regiments, which are fully Sikh regiments as well. And so by the time you get to the mutiny, there's all it's already uh, fully fledged units of Sikhs within the East India Company. And also during that time, the call up for additional resources from the Punjab is kind of almost um, not doubled as such, but it provides that um, that call of the hour. Now, the reasoning for all this appears to be not necessarily 100%, but the troops which actually fought with the British and took over the uh, the Punjab 
were the ones which were mutinous in the mutiny. So the Sikhs were almost having their uh, revenge on them as well. Oh, now we can't okay. actually, yeah. So we can't so, actually. So like the, yeah. the 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 enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah. type of Absol- you know mentality. Okay, yeah, absolutely. But I don't want to actually just say that's the only reason. Right, right, right. Employment. There was employment already. Uh, they would have come to the becking court anyway, and during this during this mut- mutiny period. But it's it's almost like the gas. You know, the torch paper has been lit, and it was never ending. The recruitment just carried on after the mutiny. You know, through the Afghan wars, um, you know, and all the way up to World War One and World War Two. So, unfortunately, we uh, even here in England, for instance, we all get hung up. Oh, the Sikhs were in World War One and World War Two. That sounds great, but I think they're missing a trick that we're talking about. You know, many, many, many decades earlier, mm-hmm. the Sikhs were with the British anyway, and hence it leads to why. I wrote this book, The British and the Sikhs, as well. And that's why it's called Discovery, Warfare and Friendship, because they're that discovery period, which I just mentioned in terms of, you know, Robert Clive. There's this um, warfare period. We talk about the Anglo-Sikh Wars. And then there's this friendship period, which happens afterwards. So these periods are very, very interesting because there's different dynamics in all these kind of, in, during these time periods, essentially. When... When the British uh, East India Company was expanding and they come upon the Punjab, the, can you explain um, the Sikh Empire to me? Okay, so during the 18th century, um, we don't have a Punjab Empire or a Sikh Empire, but you have confederacies who are ruling parts of the Punjab. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned, we have the Afghans coming in under the Durrani Empire from, from Afghanistan. And they come across these bands of warriors called the Sikh missiles. So, they're actual smaller units, firstly composed of hundreds of soldiers and rapidly increasing to a couple of thousands per, per missile. Mm-hmm. And it, it evolves into between 11 and 12 missiles, which are operating independently but they come together for a common cause whether that common cause being the afghans whether it be the Mughals in local in local territories and then what they do is the sikhs are actually fighting on two fronts they're fighting against the afghan invader but they're also nudging themselves towards delhi and then when they go past delhi they're going all the way towards Awad, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which is now British territory as well. So during the 18th century, this map where the Sikhs are all over is actually a lot bigger than the Sikh empire of the early 1800s because they're getting taxation rights from all over the place in terms of different directions. They're, you know, they're overcoming the Rohillas, they're overcoming the Marathas, they're overcoming the Mughals. And whilst the Sikhs were smaller in number, their battle tactics were pretty, well, some may even say quaint, they might even say not even that great. But what they did do was they actually had, they did guerrilla tactics, they, they had these kind of, ideas of hit and run you know we call it there's a concept in Sikh history called die bart which essentially translates as you strike the enemy you retreat 
you strike them again, you retreat, and then you get them on the on the two and a half blow, if, if one can say that. Mm -hmm. So it was whilst they never had major pitched battles with, with the Afghans, for instance, which they would never have won, they always were able to actually pick off uh, the Afghans when they were on their back from looting. And then eventually the tide did turn where the Sikhs became masters of the Punjab and then you know be able to kind of turf out invaders left, right and centre, essentially. Now, the missile that uh, you mentioned as a unit, now, it, that would be the equivalent of a battalion or a regiment or in that sort of in that sort of framework you could say that um they were there's always one leader which actually ran um this battalion as one could say mm -hmm. but it could be up to ten thousand soldiers for instance um but the smaller one could be two thousand but they were fixated under a particular leader. So right. I'll, I'll give you one. And he was the head of the, all the, the Sikh missiles. And his name was Jassa Singh Alawalia. And he was actually considered to be the commander of chief of the Sikhs in the 18th century, mid in, up to about 1783. And so therefore, there were, the warriors were split into older warriors who'd actually seen and taken, you know, the initiation from Guru Gobind Singh from 1699 or later. And then there was the younger warriors and they were never split into two called the Buddhadal, which was the older warriors and the Tarnadal, which were the, the younger and up and coming warriors. And they just split their territories up. And yes, you, we can rightly say they were battalions, they were independent, mm -hmm. but they came together, but you know, it, nothing was sacred and they would fight amongst themselves as well. So you know, that, that, it, wasn't, it wasn't clear cut sometimes. That, uh, that sounds a little almost like Zulu, like how the, the, the Zulu tribes in Africa run where they, there's married, there's not married, there's young, there's older, not, there's not obviously no, no connection, but it, yeah, yeah. It, from your studies, do you see that a lot in the world? Cause you mentioned that and that, the only time I've ever heard that is out of and mm. is out of the Zulu that they've, they, they would split their forces in that particular vein. It may, it makes me wonder about the rest of the world. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I'm not saying this is exclusively Sikh, but right. I don't think I've come across uh, this old, this splitting of older and younger mm -hmm. um, because the older ones were looking after institutions as well. They had this direct relationship from right. you know, the actual initiation process of the Sikh, the Khalsa, you see. And then as they were going bigger and better and stronger, they were guiding the younger Sikhs, but the younger Sikhs also had a thought process of their own. They were more daring, in fact, because mm -hmm. they wanted to go for the, the richer prizes, which the older Sikhs had already kind of established and they'd also kind of um, gone into certain territories, which they went as collectives. But quite rightly, I, th I think you're probably right in terms of saying, you know, maybe, you know, we need to look into that as to why that strategy mm. turned out to be, I think, over the long term, a great strategy, in essence, basically, because well, if you have in, in your missile, if you have one one particular part of the missile that's developed for the the older generation, the wise generation, the yeah. the the ones that are looking um, strategically or, or excuse me tactically yeah, yeah. looking at um, looking at a battle and saying, okay, well, you know, I as a as a, a group, we would be better off hitting this because it's strategically or, or tactically correct. 
Whereas you're younger, passionate, you can't die. Nobody's going to die when I'm 22. I'm never going to die. I'm, I'm going to take this mountain. I'm taking it by myself. Who's coming with me? You guys aren't. I'm on my way. You know, so now you have the, the young that's providing the muscle and the passion and the and foolhardiness because I mean, who's going to hold back a young person? It's, it's, it's yeah. tough. It's, you know, I don't know about you. I'm a parent and that's hard for me to yeah. hold back my daughter. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, th- and this is the thing you see. So, and, and you're quite right because whilst both groups, the Buddhadal and the Dharmadal were very daring and, you know, that's why there's a number of martyrs uh, of both groups, if we can call it that, you mm-hmm. know, which, you know, um, we have a long list of Sikh martyrs and, you know, it stretches, you know, across all of Punjab. And that's right. why the Sikhs become this uh, martyrdom faith as well, because they all died fighting for their faith and they're venerated, you know, all these individuals who died for their faith are venerated. And, you know, it's, it's almost this old age old Adam, which is like, you know, if you don't die in battle, then what's your life about? It's, it was almost to that level as well. So, you know, it was almost like, well, you know, um, the Islamic faith talk about uh, going to, you know, the heavens, etc. as well, after, you know, doing whatever, whatever. But then the Sikhs almost had to match them mm. at their level and almost, you know, had to match them at their level, but also had to be better than them if they wanted to actually win across and beat them at their own game, essentially. So, you know, this idea of shaheeds, we call it shaheed, word shaheed, which is martyrs, you see. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, we talk about the, the missiles. One of the missiles was called the shahidi missile, the missile of martyrs. So, you know, it, it plays into all of these kind of ideas that we, we, we're discussing now. Now, this uh, this is an exclusive just to men either. It was, it was predominantly men. It's predominantly men. But I think that th- there's a second aspect to that. Now, whilst there was female warriors and whilst it, within the missiles, there would have been um, they would have. The, there would have been Sikh women fighters. It would have been a lot less than the men folk. However, the interest aspect when we look in the 18th century is that the Sikh women were great administrators. And that's the point which most people forget that um, whilst they mm. may, many of them may not have gone in battle, but they actually administered territories when their menfolk were out in battle. Because otherwise, when the Sikhs were going out, maybe hundreds, 200, 300, 400 miles away, other, another missile could take their territory, other invaders could take their territory. So therefore, the administrators were the women and they're a lord, you know, they're alluded to in the 18th century. So you do have some which partook in battle. And in, in my forthcoming book, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, I refer to some pivotal women um, who were exactly that. But I think the administration side, which we sometimes forget, was just as important as well. Now, these missiles... Um that we're we're talking about where would the east india company had of where where would that relationship turn into how would that relationship uh, develop okay so um the interesting part is um we have robert clive he's aware of the seat missiles he's aware that they're fighting against the afghans but then something unique happens uh well Firstly, in 1764, the Sikhs cross over the river Jumna, they go past Delhi, and then they hit Awad. And that's the first time that the British actually realized that there's a group called the Sikhs. 
nothing really comes out of it. There's no kind of power plays, etc. But incrementally from 1764 onwards, and the key date is 1783, because in 1783, one of the leaders of the missiles, whose name is General Bagail Singh, who's on the cover of my British and the Sikhs book, actually enters Delhi. He enters Delhi uh, together with the other missiles as well, and he and the Emperor Shah Alam is actually, you know, forced to actually kind of, you know, pay money at that time. But the key thing for the Sikhs was to actually build several uh, gurdwaras. We call them gurdwaras, but you know, loosely entitled temples around Delhi. Seven of them were allowed to be built, and Bagheel Singh actually starts getting taxation rights from the Mughal authorities. This actually at that time irks the British because the British have got their prize of, of you know, Mughal Delhi as well. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, hold on a second. You know, we already have the Marathas who are there around Delhi. We have the group called the Rahilas and we're trying to incrementally come across and take Delhi at some point. But now we've got a new group to contend with and they're the Sikhs. So therefore, diplomatic overtures are actually sent within 1783 um at this time warren hastings governor general warren hastings is now in charge and he's trying to get this kind of um what's the word he wants to know more about the Sikhs, so therefore um an individual called uh, james brown is actually sent to actually kind of you know find out more about the Sikhs, and eventually he does but the point here is that the Sikhs don't want any part of it. They don't want any kind of relationship with the British. Just to actually say, yes, we we would, you know, we, we come as friends. Yeah. And the British said, we come as friends, but nothing came out of it, if, if one could say that. Mm-hmm. Then after 1783, you start then getting more of this kind of um, development in terms of how the British and Sikhs are actually kind of getting to know each other, whether it's through letters, whether it's through a few skirmishes as well. And that's when we kind of actually really see uh, what the Sikhs' intention is, what the British' intention is. But that border of the River um, Ganges is what separates uh, the Sikhs from their taxation rights and then the British. And But the key point is roughly the 1800s when the British actually actually do take Delhi over, you know, after the Battle of Asai, 1803, et cetera. Is there an ultimate spark that, uh, that starts the... Anglo-Sikh, uh, first, uh, first Anglo-Sikh conflict? Is there an ultimate spark or is it just something that's built over the course of those, that time? Okay, so I think we need to kind of probably just, uh, right, so we get to the, I think we need to have a little, just to actually add in an extra big component here. Absolutely. Between, between the end of the 18th century, uh, so circa 1800, and the Anglo-Sikh Wars of 1845. So we've got this period here of roughly 45, 46, whatever, many years. So before we do that, what happens is these confederacies, as great as as they are in the 18th century, some of the ageing leaders are exactly that. They're old now. There's not seem to be many succession planning and they've lost their way a little bit. Some of them are getting very comfortable. But then one leader, He's very young. He's his name is Ranjit Singh, and he is the missile leader of the Sukkur Chakia missile. He is actually has his thought process. He's guided by older individuals, and he actually takes over Lahore in 1799. 
Whilst for other people, it might be simply, okay, let's just stop at that. But no, he then goes and takes Amritsar in 1801. Then all of a sudden, this idea is now perpetuated that one missile leader is going to either absorb, destroy, or unificate, you know, with a process of unification of all of the Punjab, which he mm, does okay. do, which he does do. So he takes over all the missiles, subdues them, gives them compensation, you know, pensions them off, and he becomes the Maharaja of the Punjab. The land of the five rivers is what we call Punjab. So he becomes a Maharaja of the Punjab. And this is considered to be the glory period for the Sikhs between circa 1799 and when he dies in 1839. So this is the period where the Sikhs have actually kind of got stability. They're minting their own coins. They did do so in the missile period as well, but it's more stability now. Mm-hmm. The Sikhs are seen as an actual world power. Now, this is really important because um, whilst they actually have contact with the British, for instance, they have contact with other uh, foreign powers in the subcontinent, if you can say that. Mm-hmm. They're also now, in the early 1800s, they're also having contact with the King of England. They've got contact with the King of France. They've got contacts with, with Cairo. And this is important because... Once people see Ranjit Singh as being, you know, the great leader of the Sikhs, we also start seeing trade kind, sorry, trading aspects coming into it as well, including uh, mercenaries from Europe being recruited into the Sikh army in the early 1800s. So the early so that would that would probably be more the French than the British in that. Absolutely. So um, so we have people who fought in the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. We have some people like Generals Allard, for instance. Um, we have General Ventura, General Court, and you name any area of Europe. There was definitely one person. We could, we're talking about in excess of at least uh, sixty plus individuals who actually fought and actually trained the Sikhs as well. So the Sikhs were primarily cavalry. And with the influx of the Europeans, you start looking, you start getting a lot more infantry. You start getting more artillery, which is something the Sikhs were never good at in the 18th century. So there's a merging of the old missile way of fighting, which is primarily like cavalry, and then different units being set up as well, which um, uh, is complementary to this new way of fighting as well. So it's an absolutely fascinating cosmopolitan area known as the Punjab, which is like, you know, bringing in all these individuals and hence bringing in a lot of wealth. Into you've just, Punjab. you've just opened up a whole new unpack there. I just, because, because I'm, because I was not imagining the missiles being cavalry. Right, right. I'm thinking, you know, 2000 soldiers, you know, you know, with their with their knives and their guns and stuff. And and now you're talking 2000 cavalry or 10,000 cavalry. Correct. Yeah, that would be a much more potent force. Now, if you know, you're looking back in the in the late uh, 1800s, that becomes a very potent force of missiles. So I could see where if uh, you have a 2000 or you have. Uh, you just blow my mind here because now my mind's going. Yeah. And then you got the young and you got the old. 
the that's, older, that, the younger, in the in the in the, in the missile, and they're all on horses. Yeah, but that's that's, that's, that's 18th century, and I think you just said uh, late 1800s. We're talking 18th century, but right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's but that's the key. You see, how do you train this cavalry force into a bit more of a modern kind mm -hmm. of force, if that makes sense? So, whilst it worked in the 18th century. It needs to be modernized because if the British was encroaching towards the Punjab, they had to fight in a similar vein as well. Whilst it had worked against the Afghans and the Mughals, by having this influx of mercenaries from Europe, mm -hmm. we're talking a different whole ball game now. Because if you're if you if there's a if there's a battle, let's take a you know, just a, just a, ge a generic battle yeah. and you have your yeah. missile and it's cavalry and you're going up against a combined armed force of mm -hmm. artillery, cavalry, and, mm -hmm. and infantry that, that, that cavalry is going to have a tough time, mm -hmm. regardless of its, its bravery, regardless yeah. of its, uh, its overall power individually. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. what R Ranjit Singh recognized. And he, and it, it was a bit of a struggle to begin with because initially the Sikhs were like, we don't become infantry. Mm -hmm. They even had funny names as well. They called it the ballet's foot, um, ballet's uh, foot, foot something or whatever. It's just like just just kind of like poncy names to say, well, what's the infantry going to do? Mm -hmm. But what Ranjit Singh did was he actually changed the pay structure as well, whereby he made the kind of you know um, infantry you know, almost the most exclusive and things like that. He created certain units, which if you did infantry kind of um, roles, your pay would be X, Z and Y, or you'd be given land in lieu, for instance. So it's different ways in which he created this recruitment process. Artillery was an interesting one as well, because it, the artillery was just coming up. Whilst there was some artillery and there were Sikhs who were actually working on artillery projects, the key thing was that the British actually, when they gave presents to the Sikhs, they actually gave cannons, they gave big guns to the Sikhs. The Sikhs actually improved on the British cannons. So when we get to the Anglo-Sikh wars of 1845 onwards, the Sikh cannon, in some cases, is far superior than the British cannon. So just to, to mm -hmm. just touch on that real quick before we move on. So if the they got this cannon, it was a smooth bore, then they might rifle it. Is that um, or it, it was, how, how would that improvement take place? Like the what? improvement, I think the improvement took place in terms of in terms of various ways. But I think what they did was the actual patterns themselves. They actually, you know, they looked at different weights, for instance, mm, as well. Okay, and also with the European mercenaries, they helped out as well. So they could actually, you know, work on it with the Sikhs to actually create this refined cannons. But yeah, when we'll talk about the Anglo-Sikh Wars next, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was definitely something which the British were definitely not expecting, especially after giving their own cannons away to us <laughs> as <laughs> gifts. <laughs> that would probably be a little bit of a shock, I would imagine, yeah, the first time. Yeah. So after... Uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh passes yeah. away in 1939, you know, 1839, 1839, excuse me. Um, the, that, that time between 1839 and the 1st Anglo-Sea conflict of what, the 1847? 1845. 1845. So you're looking at just a few years there, maybe five years. Uh, uh, yeah, it's about five, six years. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so what happens during that time, that, that, that span of time, who's, who's in charge? That's the interesting part because um, succession has never been great in terms of the seat way of life, in terms of the military aspect. And Ranjit Singh passes away. He doesn't actually, he does give the, the name of a successor named Karak Singh. Uh, he's the eldest, one of his eldest sons. Um, he's not considered to be that great. And therefore there's factions now developing within the seat court uh, to, over, to remove him and then, He's removed, and then his his son's removed, and then there's another son by the name of Prince Sheer Singh. Um, but during this time, their relationship with the British is still okay. So all the different Maharajas, which are there between 1839 and 1845, we can say, are generally there's been there's no tension. And interestingly, in 1839 itself, the Sikhs actually helped the British conquest in Afghanistan as well. So, you know, it's not a case of the Sikhs are not helping the British out because they're right. also helping out their expansionism. They just didn't want a big army coming through Afghanistan. They allowed them to pass via a different route, if that one may say that. Right, so right. from that point of view, it's okay. But what the British are seeing now is a weakened state, if one may say that. Mm -hmm. So during that time, there's an increase of um, you know, British personnel around the Punjab. There's there's certain incidents that take place, and then you know during 1845, there's this actual breakdown in communications between the British and Sikhs. But the actual army is very unruly now as well. They're considering themselves to be more stronger than the Maharaja, whoever they may be. And in 1845, the youngest Maharaja is only you know only a child, and is and is, you know, the regent is his mum, uh, named Maharani Jindankor, and some Sikh leaders, um, a war is instigated. Now, if we look back who instigated it, you know, there's different views, for instance, there's, we've got an unruly army who wants to have a fight with the British. We have a British um, East India Company who, as part of the expansionism, would want to take Punjab anyway. And then it leads to certain events. And then the Sikhs cross over the river Sutlej into their own territory, though. This is what uh, people seem to not forget. They cross over into their own territory. It is a prov provocation, but it is their own territory, mm. which leads to the Governor General, Lord, um, well, Governor General Hardinge, to declaring war on the Sikhs. So that's the kind of um, the backdrop to the Anglo Sikh Wars of 1845. This is going to sound very insulting. I don't mean it to be. What, what does somebody want from the Punjab? I don't know. I've never been there. I've, I, I don't know much about it. So, you know, what are the aspects of the Punjab that somebody says, hey, you know, that would be great to bring into our fold? Mm. Well, again, if, if, if I mention something called the Great Game, the Great Game is mm -hmm. keeping Russia at bay, basically. You know, the, um, the idea of Afghanistan, you've got Russia behind that. The idea was always, even at that time, I mean, we talk about Russia today, Mm -hmm. Exactly what they're doing. It's like they want to, the British want to keep the Russia want to keep the, the Russians at bay. So what you have is Punjab is this buffer between British territory, Afghanistan, and you know Russia. So as part of this buffer, which is one thing. Again, it was alluded to by Robert Clive in the 18th century, but also by Governor Hardinge and British policy as well. There's also the Punjab is now turning into or was 
one of the richest states in the south in south asia so it, you know like we just talked about trade uh, mm-hmm. being flourishing you know um it's a lavish area to be living in you've got this influx of you know individuals from around the world as well but you know the sikh treasury is is massive the sikhs have also coveted the most expensive diamond in the world at that time which was called the kuhi nu diamond that was taken by ranjit singh from shah shuja of the afghans so mm-hmm. there is multiple reasons uh for the british to actually want the punjab so there's as, an I was going to say, so there's an economic region, re- reason. Absolutely. There is a strategic uh, reason yeah. for the region uh, mm-hmm. within keeping more buffer from the uh, Russians. And then uh, trade routes, Absolutely. because you don't just have trade route from, from Afghanistan and that, that area, uh, Baluchistan, uh, to the yeah. south, or, but also yeah. into other parts of Central Asia, into yeah, Turkey, Tibet. Iran, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, all those mm-hmm. regions. So, yeah, that would be you know, strategic for, for, for many reasons. Okay. So now we get into the first Anglo-Sikh conflict, uh, the Sikh war. When does it go south for the Sikhs? Well, it doesn't quite actually go south to begin with. <laughs> it right, goes not to begin in, with. Yeah, not to begin with, because the... So I think the key thing to probably put into context here is that um, the Sikhs have always felt that they were let down by their leaders. So let me explain how this plays out. So Mm -hmm. there's two commanders in charge of Sikhs. Their name is Ted Singh and Lal Singh. Okay, And it's always considered that they were in collusion with the British. They wanted to actually destroy the Sikh army. So therefore, in a new world order, they would have even better positions. That's, the, that's always been the thought. There's been people who say, no, that can't possibly be true. But anecdotal, well, not anecdotal, actual uh, papers and documents from the British actually saying it was true has been provided in my book, The British and the Sikhs, and The Rise of the Sikh Soldier as well. But let's keep that to one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual battles itself composed of the Battle of Mudki, the Battle of Ferozshah, the Battle of Aliwal, and ending in the Battle of Sobrawa, are the four main battles during the first Anglo Sikh Wars. During Mudki, for instance, the Sikhs miss a trick in terms of not being able to take out Ferozpur, where there was only a cantonment, which led to um, Lord Goff, Goff as commander in chief of the British armies, giving him time to actually kind of, you know, bring a major force up to the Punjab. In the Battle of Ferozshah, the Sikhs are actually winning on day one. They're actually in control and uh, state papers of the British have been burnt. Certain exquisite items of the British are being sent for for safekeeping because on the second day of the Battle of Ferozshah, it's felt the Sikhs are going to wipe them out. doesn't happen. So it then leads to uh, a skirmish called the Battle of Budawal, where again the Sikhs fail to kind of um, materialize on their gain and then we get this battle of Aliwal where the Sikhs are defeated leading to a final battle of the battle of Sobrawa where the Sikhs are completely defeated and you know and, and it's actually seen as a misjudgment by the leaders who are either colluding with the British are either not participating in the battle with you know with full force and not dep- 
employing the forces uh, that they should be to actually take on uh, the might of the East India Company. And so therefore, um, it goes south, not because of the f- idea of the Sikhs were a fighting Paris mm-hmm. uh, army unit, which they have been, and they were trained by the European generals right. as well. And as I mentioned, they were, their cannons were far superior. It was partly tactics, is partly being let down by the leaders, but, you know, and, and the credit has to be given to the British as well. They actually were able to play on all these areas or deficiencies and ride their way through. But that's not to say it wasn't a very big test for the British because after the Battle of Mudki, well, during the Battle of Mudki, they thought that was just one battle and it would be over and done with. They never expected it to actually last through these several battles for the Punjab to, well, at that point, well, it wasn't annexed at the Battle of Sabrawa, but for the uh, Sikhs to be defeated after so many battles. After this, there's only a short time before it picks up again. Yes. So 1846, um, what happens is the British have actually got some administrators put in, they call the Lawrence Brothers. Mm-hmm. And it's more about actually just putting some infrastructure in, reducing the Sikh army, and the Maharaja, who I mentioned was a child, his name is Maharaja Dalip Singh. He's actually made to sign a treaty, for instance. Um, but there's still trouble brewing. And the consort uh, of Ranjit Singh, her name was Maharani Jindankor, she's banished, she's taken out the equation. So there's actually these little elements which are kind of perturbing the Sikhs. However, it's not like the Sikhs en masse said, okay, we are now going and, you know, overthrowing the British and ridding the British of the, out of the Punjab. The actual second Sikh war actually starts some, far, some distance away from the key main centres of Lahore and Amritsar and other Punjab territories. It actually takes place in a place called Multan. And it's actually a Hindu ruler there by the name of Divan Mulraj. And what actually happens is two British officers are there to actually relieve him of his duties. They've been sent by the Lahore Dabar or the Punjab or Sikh Dabar to actually relieve him of his duties. During that time, these two British officers are killed. And what happens then is uh, small forces are sent to actually kind of quell the disturbance. But the disturbance gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And during this time, most of the Punjab, most of the Sikhs are supportive of the British. There's no tension. But it's taking months for Gough, again, Commander-in-Chief, to bring his forces up down from the south, up to kind of see if there is a war, in, indeed, if there's going to be a war. He actually says, when, I, when I've been told to be called up to the Punjab, am I fighting with the British or am I fighting against the British? He didn't even know. So... Divan Muraj actually starts, um, well, what happens is the British create a siege around Multan. And during this period of, you know, from April 1846, um, or, sorry, sorry, it's from 1848, all the way up to, you know, February 49 circa, there's a siege starts taking place. And during that time, Sikhs are disenfranchised because they're thinking, well, what's going on here? Um, you're taking, trying to take out this one, one individual, which is fairly straightforward, but yet lots of people are being killed in the process for no reason. Um, so therefore, there's, you can start getting some dis- disenfranchised uh, Sikh units. And one of the um, 
rule is that, that one of the um, um, individuals at the time's name is Shir Singh, Shir Singh Adariwala. So him and his father actually are the ones which actually start saying, well, okay, we're going to actually support Divan Maharaj in this quest of, you know, deposing uh, the British. Interestingly, they both, whether it's they collude to come out with a statement or whether they don't, they both say and, and cite the removal of Maharani Jindankul, so the Queen, out of the Punjab as being the catalyst. Mm. So they don't refer to it as the invasion of Punjab, they, f- they refer to it as her mistreatment as the reason why they're rebelling against the British, which is not no- normally or commonly kind of, uh, kind of cited. Right. But it, it starts again. So we've got um, the siege of Multan, but then we have a different theatre of war now. So Shir Singh attracts a number of followers and he goes to battle in, in a place uh, called Ramnagar, which is modern-day Pakistan. So first Sikh war is generally found in what we call modern-day India, mm-hmm. and second Sikh war is what we would traditionally now say as modern-day Pakistan. So, uh, so we have the Battle of Ramnagar, and that's kind of like a stalemate, but either side is still buoyant. After Ramnagar, we have something called the Battle of Chilianwala, and that's an interesting battle because, again, similar to the Battle of Faroe Shah uh, um, in the first Sikh war, the Sikhs feel that they've got the upper hand now. And they feel that they can actually, you know, take out the British at this particular time. But again, strategy lets the Sikhs down a little bit and therefore allows a bit of a lull between the Battle of Chilianwala and the Battle of Gujarat. Whilst that's playing out, Multan is now, the siege is over. So the British have used the big guns and they've taken over Multan, so Multan has fallen. And the army, which is actually stationed at Multan, joins up with the main British army at the Battle of Gujarat. So now what we've got is we've got attrition of the Sikh army uh, from that period up to the Battle of um, Gujarat. But then the British have more artillery now, there are more cannons now, and therefore it almost becomes a very easy battle for them to actually take out the Sikhs. But the British, uh, sorry, the Sikhs, best time to have the upper hand was Chilianwala, where they failed to take the advantage. So it's, um, again, it was the Second War was a war which is totally different to um, the First Sikh War, essentially. So it's not like a continuation. It is. And I'll, I'll be honest, and I would say I don't think either war needed to happen because, like mm. I mentioned, um, you know, technically the Maharajas um, after Ranjit Singh still had cordial relations with uh, Right. But there was the Sikh, um, you know, the Sikh court was imploding. There's various factions there itching for a war, to, if we can say that. And the second Sikh war... I think played into the hands of the British because the seat, the bar or seat court during the seat, uh, second seat war weren't complicit. They weren't asking for any war, but the British turned it around a little bit by saying, well, okay, uh, Multan is your fault when it wasn't. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. And therefore we're penalizing you and g- gave this idea of the Punjab needs to be annexed now when again, uh, not every seat was for the second seat war either. Let me go back to something you said earlier about, uh, so you have these two representatives going to tell a king, it's not your job anymore. How does that happen? 
I, I well, you know, well, <laughs> and well, how does that happen? I, I, I'm putting myself in their place or like you know, on their horses or traveling up to this place, this, uh, this castle. And they're going to say, Hey, you know, what are we doing? Well, we're telling him that his, his services are, we're firing the King. We're going to fire the King. That, yeah. I, I think in, in, in history, that's never ended well. It almost yeah. seems like just like another civil servant. Yes and no. So the backdrop to it is this. Um, the Multan uh, region is in arrears to the main Sikh uh, court, if that makes sense. And the British are now saying, okay. well, we need to cash. We need to cash our check-in. But what they do is they actually raise that uh, amount as well. So they's not double, but it's like, well, you owed us this amount. Now we want this amount. And it's like, well, hold on, what's that got to do with, you know, the price of bread, as one would say. Right, right, right. And he goes, okay, well, I can't pay this tax, so I'll relieve myself. So he actually said, I will relieve my command. So the Sikh uh, Darbar sent a person to take charge of, like you said, this, this state. Mm-hmm. But the forces of Divan Mulraj aren't having it. So whilst after Divan Mulraj was actually tried, they could find no evidence that he actually had the British soldiers killed. It was actually soldiers within his um, you know, forces which killed the two British officers. So were they, you know, were they actually fighting for themselves? Were they fighting for Devon Murad? But there's never any proof. But yet Devon Murad suffered heavily for it. Right. He was banished out of, uh, you know, you know, out of the Punjab, you know, put in shackles. He died, you know, blind, for instance. And, you know, it was like you do wonder at which point you say, well, you're directly involved and you're not directly. But he 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 gave the keys up technically. It was as they the British officers were leaving that they were attacked as one would say. But you're quite right. Um, how did the British think that this is going to end? <laughs> In general, it's never really seemed to end well for any yeah. country or any area throughout mm. the, the century. So yeah. after the Anglo-Sikh wars, we move into a different phase of their relationship. We start now seeing that uh, whilst the Punjab is now annexed in 1849, there's there's, there's a couple of things going on here. Firstly, the Sikh treasury is taken by the British. And what happens is many of the items, the relics and artifacts are actually, some are sold off, some are actually sent to Britain itself. So we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. lavish guns and swords and shields. The diamonds, so let's put this in perspective now. So the most expensive diamond in the world, the Kuhi Noor, is now taken by the British. So the spoils of war or loot or whatever you want to call it um, is now taken by the British. That actually kind of, you know, is not is not a great thing. And it always plays on Sikh's mind even to this day is how much they the British took from the Punjab at that particular time. Uh, the army is reduced, which I kind of alluded to earlier on, mm-hmm. but there's still that sense that the Sikhs still need employment and they've got something to do. So, you know, there's this enlistment of, of people into the army, but I'll, I'll touch upon that in a moment or two. The Maharaja, the Leap Singh, who is a Sikh, is actually taken away from the Punjab, converted to Christianity and brought to England, which, on the face of it, does makes no sense. 
right? Why? <laughs> Why? Uh, like right now, like right now, the 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 y'all listening right now are looking at your, you know, your podcast app, and you're you're saying, "What's Scott's face like right now?" Because we don't do video very well, and my face is very perplexed. <laughs> that's it, that seems odd to me. Like it, it does that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make no sense at all. So. Uh, we have a change. It, pr- it probably made sense at the time for somebody. Uh, absolutely. But uh, in retrospect, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. And we have a change in leadership. So we have Governor General Hardinge being taken over by Governor uh, Lord Dalhousie. Okay. Um, and he, what he does is he, I think what he sees is that the Sikhs have this bond. They have this bond with their leader. They have the bond with their relics as well, which I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. They, which are, which goes back to the start of this podcast. The Sikhs venerate their weapons, for instance. They're trying to almost break that Sikh psyche of detach them from, not necessarily the wealth, but detach them from the sacred weapons of the Sikhs, the ones which the missiles leaders used, which are kept in this treasury. Take that, take them away, and you know you're kind of gonna the the, the fighting Paris of the Sikhs will be diminished or be part of a new world order. The idea of taking a young Maharaja who does not know what he's doing, firstly converting him to Christianity, then bringing him over to England, was all about breaking that psyche of the Sikhs as well, mm. because they always felt that the Maharaja always had the power um, in the Punjab. So by breaking that link, you only had administrators to deal with at that particular point. And the administrators knew there was no other way out apart from just to be kind of conducive to or deal with the British on those terms, if one may say that. The whole story of Maharaja Dalip Singh is a whole kettle of fish in itself. Uh, if, we, if, if we want to allude to that now before we go on to the actual uh you know enlistment of seats yeah, maybe no, 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 worth, worth going on, on yeah please Just so Maharaja Dalip Singh he co- goes to comes to Britain okay he's considered he grows up um and he's a firm favorite of Queen Victoria he he moves up into the uh, into the higher echelons of state and society in the UK they give him what he wants uh, in terms of housing he owns a big place in a place called Thetford and it's like massive estates um but he's not allowed to leave England he cannot go to the Punjab and you know it's these kind of things which perturb him if one may say that he sees that Kuhinu diamond later on as well which was given by him as a child and Queen Victoria shows him the diamond it's these kind of things which play on his mind and eventually he tries to make a comeback. He tries to go to the Punjab. He's blocked. He goes to India, but he's blocked from entering uh, the ports, for instance. And therefore his mindset completely changes. And he actually goes back and looks for papers to say, well, the treaties that were enacted when I was a child don't, don't look right to me because Firstly, what the British have done is they've taken my property. So he's, it's almost personal for him. He's saying when the Punjab was annexed, the British took my property, but they equated it with state property. So the Sukhachukya missile, which is 
his, you know, his uh, father, Ranjit Singh, had, mm-hmm. the British actually lumped everything together. So whilst uh, Dalip Singh was given a pension whilst he's in England, he's saying, hold on a minute, if I look down as when the Punjab was annexed, half of the property, estates, etc., was personal property. And I want this property back. So he wrote to the Times. He fell out with Queen Victoria. He tried. He even tries to make a deal with the Russians. And it all goes south, basically. But he aspires to become that Sikh again. Whilst he's living as a Christian, he, he wants to become a Sikh again. He reconverts to becoming a Sikh momentarily, if one can say that. Mm-hmm. But there's no way back for him. Um, he's blocked at every other intervention. But... He dies, um, you know, having that regret that he was unable to fill that ambition. But the British knew if he went back to the Punjab, it could, you know, sedation, you know, the seats could rise up again. And that answers almost your question, which you just said, well, why would they want to take this individual as a child? Mm-hmm. He was still seen as this powerful individual, as someone that the seats could get, you know, rouse themselves up under a certain individual, as one may say that. So they they did all this as a way to, you're basically, it's a, you're a very rich prisoner. Mm. Yeah. And for a time, he enjoyed living this high life. You know, he'd be at Royal Hampton Court. You know, he'd be mingling with all the high Eclians of society. You'd go shooting. He'd be your normal squire, as one may say that. And and to make things worse, <laughs> make, there's more. There's more to this as well. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's almost it's almost like a bad soap opera. It's 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 more than bad. It's a bad soap yeah. opera. It, it's like you tell somebody the story. It's like I, I mean, as a secret story for twenty years. When I tell this story to people who've never heard the story, they cannot believe it. Yeah, they, they there's they like, they'll say no way this could not have happened. It happened. And well, with everything going on in the world, yeah, you know, in the, the, the during our lifetime, there's mm-hmm. nothing that I don't think can't happen. It's mm-hmm. but yeah, for yeah. it to happen, that's what makes yeah. you go, it, it makes you, it makes you wonder. And the other thing, too, the reason I wanted to hear that is because a uh, little on the selfish side is because for me, I, you know, as I as I think about this program and the concept of the program, the wargaming and stuff like that, I think to myself, there's such a rich, there, there's so much to, to inspire, to create the scenarios and, and, and work uh, games and, and out of that as well. So it's, it's not purely extremely interesting, but there's that, there's all that, that other side of my head that says, oh, you know, I could totally create a game <laughs> You know what? <laughs> using, using, using yeah. that, uh, Using the concepts of that, you know, of of this history. I think it's really important because we may call it a game, but any game for me which imparts this history is something which would be, you know, I think people would be receptive for that. You know, people want to see something like this because as part of a game, it's teaching that history which doesn't generally get told. I'll be honest with you. You know, I'm born. I was born here in England, and when I tell this story to people who live in England, they're they like I said are shocked about how this could have happened for a Maharaja to be taken and then, you know, and, and for his life to play out. But the key point I was just about to kind of allude to was mm-hmm. that whilst he's a Sikh, his children actually um, are Christian. So he marries a Coptic Christian from, let's, let's go into world cultures now, from, yeah. um, from uh, Egypt, 
Okay, okay. so Coptic Christian from Egypt, right. and then the children are mixed race, for instance. But these children are actually very British in the sense that one joins the army, the others, you know, do various other things. His daughter, for instance, is a famous suffragette who only in the last, I would say, five, six years has come to the prominence. Her daughter, his daughter was named Sophia Dalipsi, and she becomes a famous suffragette, um, you know, fighting against the British establishment. But she only does that once she actually goes on a trip to India and finds out what her father was really about. And so the children learn about their ancestry a lot later on, as one may say, one may say so. And it, it inspires them a little bit as well to do other things. But um, Ranjit Singh is actually buried. So obviously, you know, Christians bury the dead. Mm-hmm. The Sikhs actually cremate their dead. Mm-hmm. So there's this little tension. And then, you know, people even get calls from India at times saying, well, the body should be exhumed and sent back to India or Pakistan or whatever. And then, you know, he should have uh, cremation rights. But that's a whole different kettle of fish. It, right. I'm just trying to allude to the level of what this story goes to and how it plays into, you know, certain individuals' minds across, across the world, really. And, oh, and let's not forget, we also have demands for the Sikhs who want the Queen or Diamond back as well. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. I'm absolutely <laughs> sure of that. But that, 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 again, that's another ke- uh, kettle of fish and a, a, a you know, can of worms as well. But you know, but but you get that with a lot now um, across the world in terms of repatriation of all uh, objects. Just for just for the listeners, uh, sorry, uh, as well today, the actual Kuhinu Diamond was then recut and then placed into what we now consider the Queen Mother's tiara. So the Queen Mother's tiara mm-hmm. is actually kept at, you know, the Tower of London. It's available to see and is where the Queen Nu diamond actually resides to this day. Now, I don't know much about, uh, is that part of the, the Empress of India headdress or is that? No, um, originally... Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you said. No, it's an actual separate kind of tiara, which it actually gotcha. so, so the the living queen's mother, okay, mm-hmm. she was the one who actually had the Queen of Diamond within um her tiara itself. Gotcha. But it's very rarely actually seen on state occasions. So yeah. So let's move on to now we're probably into the friendship period, I would imagine. So the friendship period, what would constitute Define friendship in this case. Well, I would use friendship in inverted commas. <laughs> it is the key word here. I think uh, the Sikhs want to get what they can from this colonial period, if we can call it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British need manpower during this period. And it's, and it, and it's this uh, relationship which continues from around about, you know, all the way up to, you know, onset of First World War and second and the Second World, predominantly the First World War. And, well, the Sikhs have realised that, you know, they're under a colonial power. And to the average person, as long as, you know, things are going, ticking along, then that's okay with that. There is some unrest from certain quarters, but it's very limited. So I think for the average individual or Sikh soldier, it's more a case that they're going to get pay, you're going to get a pension if you die and so forth the benefits are there and therefore the british go into overdrive to recruit 
as many people as possible because we're not just talking about the British actually having campaigns now against the Afghans, for instance. We're talking about Sikhs actually uh, joining the East India Company and various uh, units across overseas. So we're talking about Africa. Mm-hmm. We're talking about going to Malta. This is well before we even get to World War One, World War Two. Right. If you can say that. So they're getting this kind of exposure. And they've done really well. So I talk about this more in the Rise of the Sikh Soldier book. And it's like, well, hold on. You know, we traditionally, like I said, people equate the Sikhs with World War I um, as, as, as the key moment of, of their employment. But no, we're talking about, you know, decades earlier that the Sikhs have been sent on expeditions within specific units and, they've, and they provide this essential resource. And... That's why what happens is in the 18th, sorry, in the 19th century is that, um, and again, it goes into overdrive during World War One. is that um, if you had five soldiers from a particular village, those five soldiers now become the recruiters of the whole village, right? <laughs> essentially. And therefore you find certain pockets in the Punjab where there's a predominant amount of soldiers who would actually always be part of, you know, well, we like we like to call it the British Indian Army. It's not the British Indian Army because there's no such title. Right. But you know that's what it's envisaged as. It's still the Indian Army, but there's various kind of definitions given to it. But yeah, no, that's how the recruitment process is now going. We're talking about prior to the uh, the mutiny, 1857, but we're also talking a lot more after that as well. So there's there's this policy of recruitment going on towards into the late. Um, uh, 1800s, sorry, 1900s. Sorry. So, how did the average British soldier see the Sikh soldier in the same unit? What was the what was the view? I, I think there's still that uh, superior relationship of um, you know the, with the British superiors, you know, looking uh, at the Sikhs. But I think what the Sikhs have done is they'd actually raised their bar and raised their game mm-hmm. to a point where you know. You know they could you know, sit at the same table as one may say. Right. And, you know those they were given those distinctions. At the time, the VC or Victoria Cross was an evidence, so they gave what we call the Indian, um, the Indian. They call it the Indian Medal of Merit or Indian Order of Merit, should I say? And that was given to Sikhs in abundance for various campaigns. You actually get one pivotal um, encounter called the Battle of Saragori. That's uh, what we call, and we would talk about the mutiny, but we have the Battle of Saragori, mm-hmm. which is this instrumental uh, battle where the Sikhs are, you know, 22 Sikh soldiers are fighting off a horde of Afghan invaders. And, you know, it's considered a very, very um, important battle, which again gives that rise to the British to say, well, these Sikhs are, you know, a great defenders of our way of life or this way of life we have here. And it's this this battle after battle where they start getting these these medals and they start getting, you know, these accolades. And, you know, it all plays into uh, what we talk about now in terms of World War I. But their, their actual status is rising year on, year on, essentially. What comes to mind is I try to put myself in the mindset and if I'm a British soldier, knowing that they're in the same unit, I'm pretty happy about this. Absolutely. And, you know, but <laughs> yeah. again, I can't, I, it's hard for me to put my, my 20th century, 21st century mindset 
into yeah. a 19th, 19th century mindset. And that's what you see throughout numerous campaigns. I mean, I, I, I allude to them in The Rise of the Sikh Soldier. It's like every single uh, battle that or campaign that the British are involved in, the Sikhs at some point play that pivotal moment mm-hmm. where someone afterwards says, wow, we're glad we've got the Sikhs be, uh, uh, you know, got our backs, basically. Right. They're always pivotal at certain points during any campaign. And, and, it's, and, it, and, there's, and there's hundreds of these campaigns. So you're quite right. They make that difference. But let's just give that respect back as well in the sense that, you know, um, when the Sikhs were in danger, the British wouldn't leave them. They would also fend for them and actually retrieve them if they were in the middle of the battle as well. So, you know, it works both ways. So, you know, it, it was always that, that camaraderie was increasing and, and always continued. And that's why even to this day, when we have any kind of military kind of days, we have this day called Saragori Day in, in commemoration of the Battle of Saragori we talk mm-hmm. about. The British Army, for instance, you know, uh, alludes to the actual, um, this relationship between the British and the Sikhs. And to be fair, uh, within the UK, a majority of the people really know the Sikhs for who they are or who they were is probably a better statement mm-hmm. if one can say that they're still you know there's just all that ignorance with the turban right you know, right right and, and etc which which goes along with it and we get that quite a lot around the world but specifically in the uk it, it's in a better we're in a better position because of that relationship you see so therefore when the Sikhs migrate in vast numbers in the 1960s and before people are still aware of you know, who the Sikhs are, because, you know, going back from individual and fathers and grandfathers, they're aware who the Sikhs were and, and the pivotal role and relationship that they played with their forefathers as well. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up, and I, I hate that, but I, uh, we are on time here. You've just been my professor on this, which I appreciate very much. I feel, and I feel, I feel more uh, enlightened now than I did when we first started. Thank you. Um, for somebody who doesn't know anything, in a nutshell, what would you want that person to take away? It's a great question um, because I know you're based in the US. Uh, we know um, when 9-11 happened, the Afghans who wore turbans in Afghanistan at that time, say the Taliban, were equated with the Sikhs yeah. in America mm-hmm. only because of the turban. Yep. For the Sikhs, the turban is a signature of their attire it is part of their initiation whilst the turban has been around for you know centuries and has been worn by different faiths it was that catalyst which people had this ignorance it was, it was predominantly america but mm-hmm. you know in d- yeah. different parts of the world as well let's not let's not let's not just talk about america but the key thing was out of that has to come this kind of education process as well so to take uh, the takeaway from this is that the Sikhs are sent soldiers. They're a lovable, peaceful community who have always provided not just for the Sikhs, but for the welfare of mankind. So we have a concept called Sabat Dabala, it's for the welfare of all mankind. Our Sikh scriptures talk about the benefit of mankind, not just for Sikhs themselves. If you were to ever go to a Gurdwara, uh, which we call a Sikh place of worship, mm. the Sikhs are the only community in the whole world 
which runs a community kitchen, which means despite your faith, your caste, your status, you can go in and have food at a Gurdwara. And it's because of these concepts which have let the Sikhs become a group which is whilst we look at the we look at this lens of the martial tradition, it's still the spiritual values which actually you know um, allow the Sikhs to be who the Sikhs are. So I think it's the takeaway is the Sikhs are a saint soldiery way of life. They look very martial, but the spiritual side is which guides them and guides them for the benefit of all of mankind. Now you said martial there. What what do you exactly mean by that? I think with Marshall, you know, if you're looking at an individual who's uh, got a turban, you know, uh, they're wearing the quoits on their arms, for instance, sometimes some people wear the quoits on the turbans. Um, It can, you know, it can look very militaristic. But the whole idea is the persona is still the one of peace. Gurinder Singh, man, I so appreciate you coming on Shot and Shield today. I do feel I I really do feel more enlightened now than I did when we first started. Uh, the um, very very interesting, and uh, I am going to ask you now uh, to please come on again with me to Absolutely. discuss your new book, which is going to be out in May. Correct. Yeah, because we're going to do this again. I feel more enriched. I really do. And I do appreciate it. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. And thank you very much for having me on uh, Shot and Shield. And, you know, hopefully, you know, like I said, hopefully there's some takeaways from this. And, you know, um, if you've got some links you can put in for my work, that'd be great as well. And I'm just, uh, just want the listeners to actually know who the Sikhs are about. So, yeah. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. My pleasure. Absolutely. I have been fortunate in this episode to be joined today by Gurinder Singh Mann, the leading Sikh historian and author and director of the Sikh Museum Initiative. You can find his 3D museum called the Anglo-Sikh Virtual Museum at anglosikhmuseum.com and pick up his current book, The British and the Sikhs, Discovery Warfare Friendship, 1700-1900 on Hellion and Company Publishers' website. And soon, you'll be able to pick up his new book, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, the Sikh Warrior Through the Ages, 1700-1900, which is also part of the Muskets to Maxim series from Hellion & Company Publishers. And you have been listening in Bern, Switzerland, Rome, Italy, and in Bucky, Scotland. This has been a bonus edition of Shot and Shield, the podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. I have been Scott, the Earl of Orange. County, I'm out. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity.